Well, good evening. If you you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to continue our walk through this this epistle that was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, Colossians. We are going to finish up chapter one tonight. This is, yeah, that's right. This is week three, and we're just now finishing up chapter one. It's okay. It was fun. We're making good pace here. And we're actually going to finish up chapter one and touch on the first five verses or so of uh, chapter two. So we're actually going to begin chapter one, verse 24, which we'll read in just a minute. 21, uh, uh, chapter one, verse 24, all the way through chapter two, verse five. So uh, before we read the text, though, let's go ahead and sort of recap where we've been so far in the uh, especially last week, we, we looked at, this, the, I guess, the middle part of chapter one, and we, we spent uh, the entire time just gazing at this beautiful picture that Paul has given us of who Christ is, like this, this beautiful picture of the person and work of Christ Jesus, the, the Son of God. And uh, it's like I said, I think I said this last week, arguably the most beautiful description in all of Scripture of, of the Christ. And so in that, we, 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 we learn some things about him, that he is the image of the invisible God, that, that he is the firstborn of all creation, that he is preeminent in all things, and in him all things hold together. We also talked about what he has done for us. We talked about how he has made peace between mankind and God, because we're enemies of God because of our sinfulness, but Christ is the one who, is, who has made peace. He has reconciled us back to God, and he did so through the blood of his cross. And then we, we kind of finished up by just talking about how we respond to that, right? How we need to respond to that, and we said that we need to respond in worship. We need to acknowledge this Jesus for who he is, so we need to say, to give him glory and adoration, but there's also a sense of obedience that is tied into that response. Because if he is the image of the invisible God, that means like, he's not just a good teacher, right? He's not just someone who, who gives really good advice. No, he speaks with all authority. So when he gives us a command, we don't have a choice in the matter. We have to obey. And so we talked about how we need to respond in obedience. And, and the obedience part, that means that part of what he's commanding us to do is to go out into the world and tell everybody about him. To let other people know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that he has made peace between God and man and that they can receive the same gift of grace and salvation that we've already gotten. So there's this element of going and proclaiming and evangelizing the world through, through evangelism, through missions, through all these things. And so there's this idea of us having to go, leave our comfort zones and go out and go tell people about Christ. So tonight, in the passage of scripture we're going to look at, for, you know, for a church crowd, the, the Sunday evening folks, you probably get real excited about the person and work of Jesus and about how great and awesome and glorious he is. And we get excited about uh, the work that he did on the cross for us, and we, we wanna worship that, even sing songs about, about him and his work just like we just did. There are even people who are gonna get really excited about evangelism and missions. 
But what we're going to focus on tonight is a piece of the puzzle that might, not always, but might cause some of us to shrink back just a little bit. Because if we're going to live in obedience to Jesus, if we're going to do all those things that we said we needed to do in response to his greatness and his glory, we have to look at what our lives are going to look like once we do live this out in obedience. And we look at the history of, of like all of the history of the church and the examples that we see in scripture, what that means is we're gonna have lives that are marked by suffering in this world. Unfortunately, the Christian life is not one that's just like all sunshine and rainbows. There is difficulty that is involved with the work that we are called to do as members of the church. There is suffering that is involved in living the Christian life. And so let's look at the text tonight and see what the Apostle Paul would, would have to tell us on this particular topic, picking up in verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So the, the plan for tonight is there are three words that I'm picking out directly from the text, three words, and they're gonna serve as our three main points tonight. And sort of like we did last week, not only we're gonna look at those three points, we're gonna try to explain what Paul means when he uses these words, but then we're going to kind of turn it back on us and we're gonna look at some personal application that we need, things that we as the church today need to do as we learn about what Paul is talking about. And so the first thing I want us to look at tonight is Paul's suffering. It was, it was, that was pretty much the, the buildup, right, is Paul's suffering is uh, he suffers for the sake of the gospel. He is a, it even says in verse, very first thing he says in verse 24, it says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And so if we think about the, the apostle Paul, and we, we hold him up rightly as one of the great heroes of the faith, we might be tempted to think that because he's such a great servant of the Lord, 
that Paul must have lived just a, a really awesome life, just a really, uh, just he had, because he had just the blessings of God on him, everything must have gone really well for him, right? Well, that is obviously not correct. In fact, Paul himself writes in a different letter to the Corinthian church. He's actually giving a list of some things that happened to him in his life. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 11. You don't have to turn there. I'll just, I'll just read this for you. He's, he's given an account of some things that happened in his life, and he says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So that's 40 lashes less one, so it's 39, but that happened on five separate occasions, so you can do the math on that one. Then he says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger from the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me from my anxiety for all the churches. We still think Paul had just a really simple life because of God's blessings. I heard a preacher one time just kind of read this and say, uh, hey, if you ever thought you were having a rough day, look at this passage of scripture and we can realize that maybe we don't have it quite so bad after all. You know, sometimes, maybe you've heard this expression, like if things are just going really badly for you, it's like, oh, I just feel like this whole day is just snake bit. Well, guess what Paul didn't mention? At one point, he literally got snake bit, okay? That was one of those shipwrecks that he mentions, like, and so he washed up on the shore, and so they're just like trying to survive and gather firewood. In that process, he was literally bitten by a snake. So it's like, so there's other things that weren't even in this list, other terrible things that happened to him, right? So Paul suffered. Paul suffered so what does that mean for us? How do we react to this? And so what that means is that we must embrace suffering. When we suffer, our, um, our go-to, like our immediate reaction typically is, all right, what do I gotta do to make this stop? And so Paul says, he has a different attitude. Verse 24, he says, now, I rejoice in my sufferings. Like there's a lot of emotions you might experience when suffering is occurring. Maybe it's sadness or anger, fear, doubt, worry. No, he says, joy. I rejoice in my sufferings. So what Paul is saying is that when suffering happens, instead of avoiding, instead of running away from it, all we need to do is just embrace it. And we can't do that with the typical mindset. We have to know in advance that when suffering happens, that it's happening for a reason and that God is going to bring something out of it that is actually going to bring joy to us. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And, but this goes right along with what you, you might, you've seen in the book of James, right? James chapter one, verse two says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And then James goes on to say, because God is using those trials to build up endurance in your life, strengthen your life, strengthening your, your relationship with Christ, and that's gonna lead you to the crown of life. So we have to rejoice in our suffering. We have to embrace suffering. And in addition to that, we need to endure suffering. Again, 
our tendency is to want to make it stop. In fact, that even goes along with suffering that comes with from our Christian walk, from uh, living out the Christian faith. If we're living out the Christian faith the way that we're supposed to, we're outspoken about our relationship with the Lord, but then suffering comes, whether that's at work, some, some like, maybe some persecution that you're receiving from some coworkers, or maybe there's other kids at school who are making fun of you because you go to church or because you're outspoken about your faith. You start experiencing some kind of suffering as a result of your faith. Well, our tendency is, well, if being outspoken about my faith causes me to suffer, well, then I'm not gonna be outspoken about my faith anymore. But Paul is saying we can't do that. We can't afford to do that. We have to endure. We have to stick with it. We have to keep going. We cannot give up. And as he's talking about this, I want us to look at verse, continue to look at verse 24, this kind of middle part. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Okay, so I said there's a reason for the suffering, and when we understand that reason, it's going to make the suffering worth it. But in order for us to get there, we have to deal with this, what might be a troubling little phrase, especially if you've got a background in church here, because he says, in my suffering, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ Jesus, okay? That might even be weirder to some of us than the idea of like rejoicing in suffering, right? If you've been in church long enough, you're used to the idea of rejoicing in suffering, but then you hear somebody say there was something lacking in the afflictions of Christ Jesus, that should make us pause, right? Now, what it sounds like at face value if you just read that phrase without any context or without doing the work to try to understand, it sounds like that Christ's work on the cross was not enough by itself. Now, hopefully, everybody knows that that is not the case. That is not what Paul was saying. That is not what Paul means. In fact, if that is what Paul means, he has just contradicted everything else that we see in pretty much every other verse of the Bible, including stuff that he wrote himself, including stuff that he already wrote in this letter. But we talked about the, uh, he's made, God made, or Christ made peace between God and man through the blood of his cross, right? He reconciled us, so he's, he would be contradicting himself. So we know that that's not the case. In fact, I was uh, talking to Brandy last night and just kind of read this verse to her. It's like, hey, what do you think about that? What do you think that means? And, and so she knew immediately it can't mean that there was anything lacking in, for salvation for in the work of Christ on the cross, because when he was on the cross, one of the things that he said was, it is finished. He didn't say, all right, I got most of it done, now the rest of it's up to you guys. Now the rest of it is up to Paul and his suffering. I got, I got you most of the way, and now I need you guys to just push it across the goal line, right? No, he said, it is finished. It is done, it has been completed, the work is finished. And so if that's not what he means, then what in the world does he mean? How does suffering fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, the only thing that anyone could possibly say is lacking in Christ's afflictions is that enough people haven't heard about them yet. There's lots of debate 
over what this verse means, but this is where I kind of landed. This is um, what several, several pastors and writers that, that I really trust, and, and uh, this is where they've kind of gone with it, and they say that the reason why Paul is saying that something needs to be filled up, what's lacking in the, in the afflictions of Christ Jesus, is that there aren't enough people in the world who know about the afflictions of Christ Jesus. And that, that goes really well with what we're gonna see throughout the rest of this text here. And so we look back at Paul's suffering. Why, why is he suffering? Because he wants more people to know about the afflictions of Christ Jesus. All the, the laundry list of terrible things that I just read to you about what happened in his life, when did those things start happening to him? After he came to faith in Christ and when he started going on these missionary journeys and started planning all these churches. That's when these terrible things started happening. That's when he started really suffering. And so God uses, he used Paul's suffering, and even to this day he continues to use the suffering of the people, the members of his church, the members of his body, the church. It is through our suffering that the cause of Christ is extended to the ends of the earth. So when we say our suffering's worth it, that's why it's worth it. When we suffer, that means more people are going to come to know Christ. That means the gospel is going to go to more places where it has not yet gone. Which is why we've got to endure. It's why we've got to keep the faith. It's why we can't give up in the face of suffering. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount this is Matthew chapter seven. He kind of ends his, the Sermon on the Mount with this story of these two men. Both of them are building a house. One of them builds their house on a foundation of sand. The other one builds, his foundation, builds the house on the foundation of rock, right? It's the, he builds it on the rock. And so the storm comes, and the one that's built on the sand, this is great, was its fall. But the one that was built on the rock stood secure. So that's obviously that's a good teaching. That's Jesus, like his most famous sermon. But what I want us to know tonight in regards to our topic for this evening, the suffering that we experience, the suffering that Paul experienced, the person who built it on the sands, the person who built it on the rock, both of them had to withstand the storm. And so even those of us who have our lives built on the solid rock foundation of Christ Jesus, we're not exempted from the storm. We're not exempted from suffering or pain or any of these things that happen in our lives. No, those things are still going to happen to us. Maybe even more suffering is headed our way, but because of the foundation that our lives are built upon, we can trust that it's going, that we are going to stand secure because of Christ Jesus. So, Paul's suffering, we have to embrace it, we have to endure through it. Secondly, we want to look at Paul's stewardship. That's another word that he used directly from the text, at least in my translation. Verse 25 says, The suffering for the sake of the body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. All right, so stewardship is, is one of these words that people sometimes get a little nervous when it's mentioned from the pulpit, right? Um, it's, 
So typically most of the, con- and which by the way, if you're a life group leader, maybe it makes you even more nervous, right? Because you just went, sat through a presentation talking about the, the giving campaign, whatever it takes that's gonna be coming up, right? And so you're hearing about like giving and tithing and um, making additional offerings and all the work that we are hoping to do through the whatever it takes campaign. And, uh, and so I want to just like let everybody just take a breath right now. So yes, giving, offerings, tithing, just finances in general, all of those things are tied up into stewardship. But I want you to know that, that the financial aspect is really just one component of the overarching picture of what stewardship really is. Like It's typically the one that when we talk about stewardship, that's really where we go to most of the time. In fact, we've got a stewardship committee here at the church, and lots of Baptist churches have a stewardship committee. They're the ones that handle the money. And so that's typically where we go to. But if you look at the context of the New Testament and uh, just the ancient world in general, steward, and even beyond that, like the stewardship was a much bigger picture than that. And I believe that Paul was really referring to the bigger picture, not just the one component. So let's look at the bigger picture for a minute. So in this time and in other eras of history, this idea of stewardship dealt with the fact that you would have had like these rich landowners, right? These might have been royalty, might have been a king or a lord, or maybe just it was this rich person who owned a lot of land. But because of their wealth or because of their royalty or nobility, even though they owned the land, they were not going to be the ones who went out and worked the land. So if you wanted to, like, to get anything from that land, to grow crops on it, or to, like, have animals that are out on it, or to do anything where you can gain a profit from the land that you possess, the land that you own, somebody had to go out and work the land. So what they would do is they would hire servants. And you want to have one guy who's actually in charge of the servants, right? One guy who's calling the shots out there. And that guy was the steward, so the, the head servant, the one who is really kind of running the show, he's the manager, the one who's managing the affairs of the estate, of the property. And so Paul is viewing himself as, as a steward for Christ Jesus. If Christ is Lord, then Paul and other apostles like him, and even church members today, all of us like him, are stewards who are given work to do. And this idea of the, the, the steward could actually sometimes be an awkward role to be in because in, if you're in the presence of your Lord, your master, then you're a servant, just like everybody else is a servant. But in the absence of the master, whenever they left to go back to the mansion or wherever it is that they're going, in the absence of the Lord, then the steward is now all of a sudden the boss. He's the one that's calling the shots. So you're having to go into this this weird back and forth, right? Well, that's exactly the way Paul would have viewed himself. He's the guy who's going out, he's planting these churches, and he's training up leaders and bringing up other people alongside of him. And in many ways, he's having to call these shots because there's, he's the one that's making all these different types of decisions about what we need to do. And that's why he's writing all these letters is because he's trying to encourage these, these younger people in the faith on how to live their lives in Christ. But Paul himself would have 
very quickly shifted into the role of servant in the presence of his Lord Jesus. And so that's the idea of what stewardship really means, the bigger picture of stewardship. And so Paul, because he is a good servant to Christ Jesus, wants to be a good leader to the Colossian church, even though he's never met them. So he feels a responsibility for the Colossians. And so he's saying that as a good steward, I want to make sure that the work that our Lord and Master has given us is accomplished. And so what is the work that we're referring to? Well, let's, uh, this, we just um, read this. this. It's the idea that he says, this verse 25, the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So what's the job that we're given as stewards? Make God's word fully known. We want to make it known to all people, and we want every part of it to be known by them. Make it fully known. And so what that means is, we've got a couple of things we've got to do here. First, we need to help others. We must help others know the mystery of Christ. Help others know the mystery of Christ. So he uses that word mystery a couple of times in the text. That's typically not the word we use when we're talking about the good news of Jesus, right? We normally say things like the gospel, or we say the good news, things like that. But he says the mystery of Christ. Let's think about it this way. Let's, let's say you're, like, you're watching a mystery movie, or you're reading a good mystery novel. Well, you're walking through that, and so at the beginning of the movie, the beginning of the book... You don't have all the answers. And you're trying to piece it together as you go. And you, but you know because when you picked it up or when you turned it on, you knew that it was a mystery story. And so you're just waiting for the climax, right? When all the pieces kind of fall together into place and you just have that aha moment of, oh, yes, this is what happened, like that climax. Well, imagine either you're watching the same movie a second time. Like you, you've already seen this one. You know how it plays out. You want to watch it again. Or maybe you had the ending spoiled for you. Well, now you're watching it from a different perspective. And so that means you've got the answers. And so that means the second time you watch it, you can actually, like, you see some of those clues because you know where they're all headed. You pick up on some things that you missed the first time. Like, oh, if I would have known that, I would have realized what was going to happen later. You know, so you're going through all these different things and so you're seeing the pieces. Well, for us, when we look at the Bible... The story of Scripture, we already know how it ends up. And we're on the, the, like, for us, the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection from the grave, that's all past tense for us. And if you were raised in church or you've come to know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, you know these events. And so when we go back to the Old Testament, it's like watching the mystery movie the second time. You're watching these past events and you're looking at the clues and so you can actually see where everything's gonna go and line up. But what Paul says is that for, for many of the people who are in his audience for the Colossians and especially the people of the Old Testament, he says people like ages and generations past, this was unplaying during their lifetimes and it's like they were watching the mystery movie for the very first time. They didn't have all the answers they didn't know how the pieces were going to add up. They were just having to walk in faith that they were. And so that's why he refers to it as a mystery, because not everybody was able to look at it with our perspective of actually knowing the answer in advance. 
They were having to figure it out as they went along. But what we need to realize is that in Paul's time and then still for us today, there are millions of people in this world who for them, this is still a mystery. There are people here today who don't know how it all works out. They are still living their lives with some pieces here and there, but they don't see how they all fit together. And they need someone to reveal to them the mystery of Christ Jesus. They need someone to come to them and to show them the answer. And this all kind of culminates. I just love this verse, the end, kind of the end of verse 27. He says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I just love that verse. I love what it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Even like one of my favorite Preachers has even like, I've heard where he preached an entire message just on that one verse. We don't have time for that, but I just love that verse. And so I just love this idea of, of Christ in us and how that is our hope for glory. Um, in preparation for this, I actually um, earlier in the week had a conversation with Chad, and we were talking about what that afflictions in Christ part meant, but he actually pointed me to the story of a missionary, a guy by the name of John Patton. He was a, a, a Scottish missionary who lived in the 1800s. And he was called by God to go to some islands in the South Pacific. And it was known that those islands, the, the people who were native to those islands, right, the people who, who lived there, the tribes that lived on those islands, actually participated in cannibalism. And so he was feeling called to go there. He was trying to get support together. And so there was one guy who told him, you don't need to go there. You're going to get eaten by cannibals. And so I love John Patton's response to that. He said, uh, all right, that's very true. It is very true that I might die and I may be eaten by cannibals, but I can tell, he looks at this guy and he says, I can tell you're pretty old. So it's pretty soon you're going to die and your body's gonna be placed in the grave. And when your body's placed in the grave, you're gonna get eaten by worms. So we've got a choice. You can be eaten by worms or eaten by cannibals. And in either situation, but this guy was a, was a Christian that he's talking to, and so he wasn't doubting his salvation, but he was doubting his conviction, right? And so he says, in either situation, in the last day, in the great resurrection, my resurrection body is going to look just as fair as yours. John Patton was able to go to these islands, was able to minister to these, the people of these tribes, these cannibals, was able to do a gospel work among them that is, is, is still living and thriving to this very day. And it, but it wasn't just him. It was Christ in him that was doing all this work. And the reason why he was able to, to risk all of this, even being put to death by, by savages who might eat him after they killed him, he was able to do that because he had his eyes on something greater. He was already looking to the final day, which is eternity. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we persevere through the suffering. We keep going, we don't give up, we continue the work that Christ has laid before us because it's gonna be worth it. At the, the end of it, there is eternity in him. It's not us that's doing the work, it is Christ in us. That is our hope of glory. So we have to help others know the mystery of Christ, and we also 
must help others grow in maturity in Christ. So when we are taking the mystery of Christ, taking the gospel, the good news of Christ to people of other nations going all over the world or just telling people in neighboring communities or in this community about the person and work of Jesus, we're not just introducing them to Jesus. We want them to know Jesus. We want them to have a deep relationship with Jesus that extends for the rest of their lives into eternity. So that means we can't make the mistake of just quoting the first half of the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's been a lot of churches throughout history, a lot of believers throughout history, well-meaning, but they stopped right there. And so they were worried about gaining converts and not making disciples. We, can, we quote the last half of the Great Commission that says, teaching them everything that I have commanded you, lo, I'll be with you always, even into the end of the age. There's this idea of this relationship between uh, an older, more mature believer, older in their faith, more mature in their faith believer, with the younger believer, the one who is the like the new convert, the one who just came to know Christ as Savior, who now needs help from someone else. That's, that's what Paul talks about in, in verse 28. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, we don't just want to introduce them to Christ. We want them to know Christ deeply. We want, them, we want to help them grow in their walk with the Lord. This past Wednesday night, uh, Brandy was sharing her testimony with, with some the people who are on the, the in, at least attending the class to be a part of the, the launch team for uh, Cross Community Church. And so she was sharing her testimony and she talked about when she first came to know Christ as Savior. She prayed that prayer of repentance and, uh, and she was a young girl at the time, but really all that happened next was they gave her this little book called a survival kit and just kind of handed it to her and expected her to walk through that on her own. So there was very little in the way of the intentional discipleship for her. But we can't get by just expecting people to survive in their faith. We want to help them thrive in their walk with the Lord. And so that means we've got to help them in their maturity process. So we want to help them along in that work of sanctification. So we have to help them to know the mystery of Christ, but also to grow in maturity in Christ. And then lastly for tonight, I want us to look at Paul's struggle. He uses this word twice, verse 29, and then chapter 2, verse 1. He uses it in both these verses. It says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, those who have not seen me face to face. So what kind of struggle is Paul talking about here? And why is he struggling for the people of Colossae, the people of Laodicea? Well, the struggle that he's talking about in this text, in this context, is, is really the burden that pastors feel for their congregations, for their churches. He is struggling for them. 
Like, and, and it's even similar to the burden that a parent might feel for their child, especially as a child gets older and starts like needing a little bit more freedom and start making decisions for themselves and maybe even into adulthood, maybe they even go and get married. Well, that parent is still going to struggle, still gonna have a burden for their child and they're still going to, to wrestle with the Lord like as far as wanting what is best for them. It's kind of out of their hands at this point. There's nothing they can do. They can't, like, get, can't go back to them and tell them how they need to live their lives anymore, but they're just gonna have this still continued burden for them, wanting what is best for them. That's sort of what's going on with Paul here. And even in this case, like he talks about, I haven't even met these people face to face. Well, he feels this burden for the churches that he's planted. He is, like children, has sent them out, right? He, he planted, got them ready, and then he moved to the next place to do the same thing. But he didn't like, forget all about these previous churches and move on to the next place. No, he's continuing the work of missions and church planting, but he still has this burden for those churches that he has had to leave. And so even Colossae, Laodicea, places where he hasn't yet been, he's aware of them, he knows what's going on in their lives, and so he shares that same kind of burden for them. In the same way that, that Chad and the other pastors and the elders and other staff members, we're gonna have a burden for so many of you. And we want what is best. We want you to thrive in your relationship with the Lord. We're gonna carry a burden for you. In fact, we go back to what we saw in Corinthians, and so the big list of things that were happening, the very last one, Paul said, the daily pressure of the anxiety that I have for the churches. He's looking back at those churches that he had planted before, and he is still racked about those. Like, those are still, they're still with him. He's still, like, um, just praying for them, just wrestling with them, struggling over their well-being, wanting things to go well for them, wanting them to continue on with the mission. So how do we, as this church, take care of one another? If we know that, that Paul had a burden for, for those churches and that our pastors, elders, staff members have a burden for us, then what can we do? Because like, if you think back to Paul, what was Paul going to be able to do for the people in, Coloss in Colossae? Like, in fact, when he's writing this letter, he's in prison. So there's not a lot he can do for the folks who are struggling in Colossae. It's a little bit easier here because we have a pastor and staff who are actually like on site with us. But even in that situation, Chad and the other pastors, the other elders, they're, it's not, they're not capable of, of knowing everything that's going on in our lives. They're not capable of meeting every need. They're gonna try their best. We're gonna do everything we can in those situations, but there are still going to be times when we're not able to do that. So what can we then do as church members to help carry that burden, to come alongside these pastors and elders and staff members that God has brought here for that purpose? And so this is how Paul finishes this section, these last five verses. So first, we as a church, we affirm one another in love. Chapter two, verse two says that their hearts will be encouraged, being knit together in love. Chad, the elders, the staff members are gonna take care of us, but we also need to take care of each other. Again, we just had a life group leader meeting, and so we were talking about the need for like, like 
people, like the life group leaders, the people who are actually doing life with you, sometimes are going to find out about things before anybody on staff is. And so we don't just always just pass that along to Chad or to another staff member. No, we can address those needs ourselves. They are going to take care of us, but we also need to take care of one another. We need to affirm one another in love. We also need to anchor one another in the truth. Verses three and four, he says, uh, in whom we are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then verse four, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We gotta remember that there were false teachers at work in Colossae and in the church here. And Epaphras and the other church leaders, yes, it is their job to accurately preach God's word, teach God's word, and to fight against these false teachings. But those of us who sit under their teaching and are supposed to be learning the truth of God's word can also pick up that baton as well. When we see people being led astray, we don't just call Chad and tell him to take care of it. No, we need to speak up. We need to go to them and say, hey, this is not the person you need to be listening to. That's, that's not what God's word says. We have to address these things as well. So we have to, we are anchor one another in the truth. We have to address false teachers. So yes, it is the job of the, the shepherd to take care of his flock. But as the sheep in this analogy, we can help out a whole lot by not running off and by trying to set the good example for our brothers and sisters to stay near to the shepherd and what he's teaching us. And then lastly, we assure one another in faith. Verse five, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. We talked a lot tonight about suffering and how difficult it is and Paul is even saying to them, like, I, am, I can't be with you. I'm absent in the body. I'm with you in the spirit. And I'm rejoicing to see all the good things that are happening, but mainly the firmness of your faith. You see, when we are suffering, when we're struggling, the thing that's gonna get us through it is that the firmness of our faith. So we, we place our faith in something that is greater than ourselves. We talked about this night one. It's not the strength of our faith. It's the strength of the object of which we're putting our faith in. And the one that we have placed our faith in is Christ Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who holds all things together. So we need to remind each other of that. When we see our brothers and sisters struggling, suffering, we assure them and tell them to keep the faith in Jesus. So they need to know that we are with them, but most importantly, they need to know that Christ Jesus is with them. It's our job as their brothers and sisters in Christ to remind them of that. So as we finish up tonight, again, we wanna talk about how we respond. And the first thing I wanna say is we've talked a lot about suffering there might be some people here tonight who hear this depiction of Paul's life, hear what the life of a, of a true sold-out believer looks like and how it's marked with suffering. And then there might be people here who are thinking, man, that's not really what my life looks like. I'm not having to deal with all those different things. I wanna be careful with how I say this, but 
it is very possible that if we're not suffering, it might be because we're not genuinely following. So it might be that you need to have a conversation with someone tonight about your relationship with Christ Jesus. Have you truly responded to him by crying out for salvation? Do you truly know him as your Lord? Are you truly his steward, his follower, his servant? Are you truly walking after him? Or maybe you, you know that you're saved. You know that you have confessed him as Lord and Savior, but you're not living in the type of obedience that you need to. You've got this kind of comfortable Christianity going on for you. But that's not the type of Christianity we see being played out in Scripture. And so maybe we need to make some different commitments. Maybe we need to look at our lives and make some real difficult adjustments and changes. So what I want us to do tonight is I want us to spend some time in, like we've done the last couple of weeks, prayer and praise. We're gonna spend some time tonight praying. And so if you've got some adjustments that you need to make to your life, it probably needs to begin right here because you're gonna need God's help to do that. If we need to uh, change how we're living our lives to make it more in line with what Paul's life looks like, what, more in line with what Christ's life looked like, we're gonna need the Holy Spirit to do that. And so we've gotta get on our knees before him. So tonight, we're gonna, we're gonna have a time of prayer. We're gonna have some more points that are gonna be up on the screen you're, you're invited to, to gather together in small groups. You're invited to pray on your own, however you want to do this. We're going to enter in to this time of prayer right now. So the first point that we want to put up on the screen is first we want to thank God for sending Jesus to suffer for us and to die the death that we deserved. We're talking about our suffering, but the greatest act of suffering was Christ crucified for sinful people. So let's give thanks to him now as we pray. As you continue to give thanks to God, now thank him for people like Paul and for other servants of Jesus, like the missionary I mentioned, John Payton, for other, so many other missionaries throughout the lives, so many people who have given their lives for the, the cause of Christ, people who have suffered for the sake of the gospel.
And now let us pray that God would help us to joyfully embrace suffering, not to run away from it, but to joyfully embrace suffering as we proclaim Jesus to all nations. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you all the praise and we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that you sent your perfect Son to dwell among us, to, to live this perfect life, and to provide the perfect sacrifice for us. This, this great act of suffering that he endured for our sake, that he embraced for our sake on the cross so that we may know eternal life. God, we also thank you for the example set by men like the Apostle Paul and, and so many other great missionaries who have lived throughout history, God, that we can look to and see genuine faith lived out. All the risks that they were willing to take and all the, the suffering that they were willing to endure so that more people might know the mystery of Christ Jesus. God, may we be willing to do that same thing. May we be willing to take that risk. May we be willing to embrace that suffering, God. May we be willing to leave our places of comfort, places where, where we feel at ease or at rest, God, and may we be willing to shake up our lives for the sake of the gospel. So God, I pray that we would joyfully embrace this suffering, knowing where it leads and what it is used for, God. That you are using the suffering that goes on in our lives for the sake of the expansion of your kingdom, God. So may we always realize that and may we have eternity in mind, may we have eternity in view as we seek to live in obedience to you in all things, God. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, and it is in his holy and precious name we voice this prayer. Amen. Let's stand together. Let us give praise to Jesus.